welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich. Also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Harry T. Stone presiding. This is On Trial, the podcast where we debate the merits of the movies, the positive, the negative, Lincoln Douglas style. And this is an American Whammy production, or at least it will be in short order. I am your prosecuting attorney for the evening, Mr. Mark Rattledge, and frankly, I'm mortified. Yes, the mandated reporter is what they call me. And defending on the docket tonight first is Firestarter, as a matter of fact. Firestarter is the 1984 American science fiction horror film based on the Stephen King 1980 novel of the same name. The plot concerns a girl who develops pyrokinesis and the secret government agency known as The Shop, which seeks to control her. The film was directed by Mark Lester and stars David Keith, Drew Barrymore, Martin Sheen, George C. Scott, uh, Firestarter was shot in and around Wilmington, Chimney Rock, Lake Lure, North Carolina. And as I said, uh, defending this movie is the one and only from Asterisk 51. You love him. You know him. He's the punny. He's the punisher. P-U-N, capital. Evan Bevins, how do you do, sir? I'm doing all right, Mark. Uh, thank you for uh, entrusting me with uh, this uh, sacred duty. So we were talking before the show started tonight. I said I wanted to do Firestarter because the new uh, the remake is coming out this Friday as we're recording this uh, day and date in theaters and on Peacock. And I was like, okay, well, that that's an opportune time to go back and look at the first one. I've never seen I had up until I decided to do the podcast. I had actually never seen this as a kid. Uh, 1984 puts me at about eight years old and I would see it in the video store as you were wont to do when you're my age. But I never watched it. Um, I think around this time, the only thing that I'd seen Drew Barrymore in, in was E.T. and Irreconcilable Differences. So did you watch Firestarter as a kid? Were you aware of it? Did you only watch it for this podcast? No, I had, had never seen it before. Um, the book was sitting on my shelf. And being the way that I am, I, I felt like I had to read the book first. So uh, when when you reminded me we were doing this, um, <laughs> I, I, I grabbed the book. And, and read it first. Um, but no, I, I had never read it. Um, I think the first time I heard of it uh, was actually in a Mad Lib. Really? You know, the, the Mad Lib books, the, you know, yeah, the yeah. noun, verb, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is the first time I'd ever. And then for the longest time, I uh, I did not read any Stephen King uh, books. Um, I, I, uh, at, at some point, I had it in my mind, Stephen stuff is satanic and therefore bad. And then a friend of mine in college said, no, I think Stephen King's actually a Methodist. And I started reading and uh, loved him. So tell me about the book. Um, I mean, well, we, we can, as the podcast goes on, we can compare the book to the movie if you want. But I'm just curious, like, how does the book go? What do you think of it? 
if you've if you've watched the movie, you've gotten pretty much the Cliff Notes version of the book. It's very very uh, faithful, and um and a lot of it has has a lot of the, the hallmarks of of Stephen King. Um, you know somebody with with a power they don't fully understand. Uh, you know there, there's horror elements, but maybe a little more sci-fi than you're you're initially thinking. Very rich characters. The first. Stephen King book I read was uh, Christine, which is mm-hmm. about the demonic car or whatever. And oh honestly, yeah, we covered that. When they... We covered that on here. Uh, we did an entire triple feature dedicated to car movies, and that was one of them. Because oh, okay. because it was anchored by Titan, which was about the movie that but the girl who has sex with the car. Oh, of course. You know I haven't seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Evan Bevan but... already regretting this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm sure that won't come till later. Mm-hmm. But when I was reading Christine, the thing that, that really struck me was when the weird stuff started happening with the car, mm-hmm. I was disappointed because the characters in the book were so rich and well-developed that like, I, I was invested in what was going on with them before the car started like killing people and doing weird stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, now, now Firestarter, the book, just like the movie, starts off, you're right in the thick of it, weird stuff's going on but the the characters in the book are just very very three-dimensional very very well developed and um even though this book is i mean it's extremely short by most stephen king standards i mean if if i don't get 700 pages out of king i feel like uh i feel like he was you, you know loafing feel like you particular novel yeah <laughs> you know i mean they can't all be the stand but at, at least it should be desperation sure um all right, so normally when Sean and I uh, do one of these on trials, he does the production notes, and then I do the plot, and then we go into the prosecution. Like I said, um, I only just watched it today for the very first time. I did a little bit of reading up on some of the criticisms of it. I definitely have my own thoughts. But go ahead and uh, tell me what you know about the production notes for this movie. Okay. Well, um, this was actually originally offered to uh, John Carpenter, who knows a thing or two about, uh, you know, horror, sci-fi type stuff, mm-hmm. uh, while he was uh, filming the thing. And uh, now now I'm going to Wikipedia to uh, pull together <laughs> what I read Sorry. here and there. Um, but uh, he hired Bill Lancaster, who's actually the son of Burt Lancaster, uh, to adapt the novel into a screenplay, and Stephen King signed off on it. Um, but then uh, a few months later, Carpenter hired Bill Phillips to write another version uh, that would have had Richard Dreyfus as Andy. Mm-hmm. Then the thing came out and underperformed financially. So Universal, completely unaware that they had a cult classic on their hands, uh, hired, um, actually replaced Carpenter with Esther, who directed the, the version that, that we watched. Um, he brought Stanley Mann in to write a screenplay that stayed a lot closer to the novel than um, the screenplay is the Carpenter Commission. Now, even mm-hmm. though his son was now old, uh, two screenwriters removed, Burt Lancaster was actually supposed to play Captain Hollister, um, but he had to withdraw after heart surgery, so he was replaced by Martin Sheen, who at the time was not as old as Lancaster or as I imagined Captain Hollister to be, but Martin Sheen has the advantage of always looking like he's 60, no matter what <laughs> point in life he's in. Mm-hmm. The film was produced by De Laurentiis. It was the first to be shot at his new studio complex in North Carolina. 
And uh, like you mentioned, uh, it was shot in and around Wilmington, North Carolina in uh, the fall of 1983. It's actually the first film to be shot there after the commissioning of the North Carolina Film Office. And uh, it was regarded as launching the city as a burgeoning hub of film and television productions. Yeah, I guess, uh, according to Wikipedia, more than 1,300 uh, film and TV projects have been shot at our starter. Uh, De Laurentiis had searched unsuccessfully for a Gone with the Wind style location uh, to suit his vision of the film. Uh, he came mm -hmm. across an issue of Southern Accents magazine, uh, I'm sure you're an avid reader of, uh, yeah, that sure. featured we the historic Orion Plantation. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Mm -hmm. uh, featured the historic Orton, I said Orion, the Orton Plantation near Wilmington. Uh, the producers traveled to the area for a location scout, decided the property would be perfect for the headquarters of the shop. He approached the owners and, to their surprise, asked if he could buy the property so he could set the home ablaze for a dramatic scene in the film. They declined, but they let him use the location for exterior shots, and they used a smaller-scale replica of the main house for the fire scene. Uh Orton Plantation has since been used in dozens of films and television shows and is now owned by Lewis Moore Bacon. Yeah, Louis. <laughs> All right. So here's what happens in this movie. As college students, Andy McGee and Vicki Tomlinson participated in an experiment where they are given a dose of low-grade hallucinogen called Lot 6, like you do in college. When the other participants suffer terrible side effects, the experiment gives Vicki and Andy telepathic abilities. Vicky can read minds and Andy can control others to do and believe what he wants. Though the effort sometimes gives him nosebleeds, limiting the likewise, the otherwise very strong power. Andy and Vicky, now married, have an eight-year-old daughter named Charlene Charlie McGee, who has pyrokinetic abilities, the power to control heat and fire, and can also see the near future. <clears throat> Andy comes home from work and finds Vicky murdered, like you do. And Charlie abducted. The family had already suspected the government agency that sponsored the experiment. The Department of Scientific Intelligence, the shop, was watching them. The government wants to weaponize Charlie's powers because, of course, they do. Andy finds Charlie and rescues her by blinding the agents. Uh, and for the next year, they are on the run. The cops got their gun. And right about now, they're going to have some fun. Uh, Farmer Irv Manders and his wife, Norma. Uh, take in the pair. Andy tells Irv the truth so that when the shop arrives, he is ready to stand with them. However, Charlie quickly dispatches the agents when they arrive, because, you know, fire. They go on the run again, but Andy's power has weakened. They go to a secluded cabin and prepare to go public with their story. Unfortunately, the head of the shop, Captain James Hollister, sends agent and assassin John Rainbird to capture them and stop the release of information. To protect themselves, Andy writes letters to major newspapers unintentionally revealing their location. After capture, father and daughter are kept separated. Andy is medicated and subjected to tests and given drugs, which decrease his powers. Meanwhile, Rainbird pretends to be John, a friendly orderly employed by the shop to gain Charlie's trust and encourage her to submit to the tests. Charlie's powers increase exponentially. She continually demands to see her father as they promised. Andy is revealed to be faking the acceptance of his drugs, so his powers have never decreased, and it was all a ruse to make Hollister drop his guard. Once alone on a walk from the house, Andy uses his power to get information from Hollister and arranges to leave with Charlie that night. He slips Charlie a note when she immediately tells John Rainbird about the escape. Since he was, uh, since he has wanted to kill Charlie since first hearing about her, he hides in the barn so he can kill Andy as well. 
Charlie enters the barn first, and Rainbird succeeds in convincing her to begin the climb up the ladder to him. His plan is foiled once again. Andy enters, and Charlie instead runs to her father. She tells him that John is present and asks if they can take him with them. She is saddened and angered to find out the truth, yet believes that Rainbird went when he states he will not kill her father if she comes to him. To save his daughter, Andy orders a still mind-controlled Hollister to shoot at Rainbird. <clears throat> however, however, Rainbird kills, kills Hollister, after which Andy, using his powers, causes Rainbird to leap to the ground, breaking his leg. Rainbird shoots Andy in the neck, fatally wounding him. He then fires at Charlie, but she detonates the bullets and engulfs Rainbird in the ensuing fire, killing him. Andy, mortally wounded and dying, pleads her to use her powers to bring the facility down after he dies. The entire security team arrives and she eliminates them one by one with her powers and makes her way off the property. Charlie hitchhikes back to the Manders farm and is welcome back. Shortly after, Charlie and Irv arrive in New York City to tell their story to the media. All right, Evan, let's get down to the meat of this, the meat of the matter. <clears throat> this is not an interesting movie. It's very flat. Um, it lacks dynamic performances, dynamic direction. It's just it just kind of feels like almost like a made for TV movie adaptation of a Stephen King story. If you think about you know the premise of a father and daughter with superpowers on the run from a government agency like you know like an X Men comic, there's so much more you can do with this. There's so much more gravitas that you can give it. Um, so much more action and. I don't know if it was a style of filmmaking from 19... I, I can't, when did they go into post-production? Or production, rather. Um, 83. I, I, yeah, I would assume this was 83. Uh, I don't know if it's a, it's a sign of the kind of filming techniques in 1983. There's just limitations. But the film just feels very static at times. I think everyone's like giving their best charlie sheen is trying damn hard in this as is um martin sheen who actually appears in the movie sorry martin shut up martin sheen <laughs> uh george <laughs> c scott and martin sheen probably give the best overall performances in this and they are trying with the material that they're given but i feel like the direction didn't do them any favors and so they're while they're the two best performances their performances are still not super great drew barrymore is, is also trying her damn best um this is no et or irreconcilable differences for that matter and you know when she goes full x-men at the end uh again I, I was thinking about my complaints about iron man at the end of civil war where i wish instead of always being cool cooler than jesus tony stark that he had let out some emotion after finding out that the Winter Soldier had killed his parents. You know, you shoot her dad dead that she's been on the run with for the entire length and breadth of this movie. And she just kind of zombie walks forward. And, you know, she burns the bullets and she sets everything on fire. But she's sort of doing this and then, you know, and, and again, in almost a semi-catatonic state, which you can, that's fine if you want to tell that story. I'm not arguing with the plot point so much. I'm saying it doesn't, show up great on film um i needed rage you know i needed her, i needed her to just go full on i'm killing everybody up in this piece you know just ah and holding her hair and just you know 
I needed her to do a, you know, Kami Tami Ta, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, sure, you can, or something like that. People who like watch this stuff, who watch Dragon Ball gotcha. Z and Street Fighter, um, are like, what did he just say? That's not how you pronounce any of that. But you know what I mean? I want, you know, the movie ends no, with you. her doing, <laughs> the movie ends with her doing like magic missiles everywhere. Uh, like, come on, just kind of like, give me a, yeah, you know, she's just like walking. <laughs> you know i'm like all right i i it's a two hour i think it's two hours um yeah 114 minutes just just about two hours to get to the finale i mean she burned stuff here and there, there, there there's a lot of just making things boil at, at points but you know she has the bit where she sets Heather locklear's oven mitts on fire which is pretty cool also, like, shocked that Heather Locklear was even in this. I was like, "Woo, it's Heather Locklear from Melrose Place. I was very, I was titillated. I think it was one of her first uh, movies. It might have been. Um, but yeah, I, I was I was super, super overjoyed to see Heather Locklear. But um, yeah, I, you know, so she, ha- so she, it's all building to this big explosion. And it's underwhelming because they just, I feel like if they had let Drew Barrymore just go for it, you would have gotten a memorable performance. Instead, she's she's just zombieing around the room, around the the field. Um, I didn't love. I mean, Robert Winfrey, if he were here, would complain that I am married to conventional narrative. I mean, and as I've said in previous podcasts, there's a reason why it's conventional because it works. I think you have to be very careful with the idea of flashbacks and jumping back. You know. <laughs> I don't know if the story was served by dropping you in the middle of them running from the shop only to go back and tell you the story of how they got there, then go forward, then go back, then go forward, and then they're just forward the whole time. I also never got a strong sense of what the shop was. I wish there had, and I don't know if this is in the book or not. Um, I might be inventing something out of whole wholesale cloth, but I wish I had gotten a true menace, the, the true menace of the shop. You know, them just kind of verbalizing, we want to weaponize her. Well, do you have you weaponized anyone else? <laughs> have you is there something you can show me here? It's a talky movie, but not an interesting movie. And I'm curious now to see what they're gonna do with the new one because I'm wondering how many people have made these same complaints to where they took them into account when making the new Firestarter. But overall, to sum up my prosecution, I think this movie stands guilty of not being particularly interesting, underusing the premise, underserving the premise, and not giving us very dynamic performances. Your witness. Okay. Well, first, uh, I'd just like to say I, I'm I'm a humble man, maybe a bit outmatched by the more experienced prosecutor here. So, uh, I, I'd like the online jury to think of me as a slightly older Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill. Or a oh slightly older Matt Damon in The Rainmaker. <laughs> Maybe even, as my t-shirt suggests, a less experienced Matt Murdock. Basically, I'm a plucky defense attorney named Matt. But, you know, we're really here to talk about Firestarter. The movie, yes, but also the book, because uh, I don't think you can really separate the two. Uh, Mr. Mann, uh, the screenwriter, not a sarcastic name I just made up, uh, certainly did. Okay, yes, but don't be distracted by the promise of CGI and Zac Efron on Peacock. Okay, <laughs> you got to consider this movie on its own merits as a product of its time, which I 
think is why maybe they didn't go a little crazier with the powers and the effects. Honestly, I was kind of surprised by how much fire we did get. Mm. Um, I, I, I was kind of, you know, expecting it to build toward, toward the big climax and, uh, you know, that, uh, the incident on the Manders farm, uh, th- those were some, some pretty good blasts with, with the cars and, and things like that. So, um, you know, and you also got to think of it a little bit as a period piece, uh, cause it would unfold a lot differently in the age of smartphones and social media, which I couldn't really tell from the preview if the new, uh, version will be modern day, but I, I kind of expect them to take that into account. So one thing that's really hard to do with Stephen King books when you're adapting them for movies and TV, no matter how many times people do it, um, is to, to squeeze everything in there. They're, they're so dense and rich with characters and detail. Um, I read one of his newer ones, The Institute, and the first 90 pages is about a guy who doesn't show up until, you know, the end of the third act again. But once he does, you know why he's doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That works a lot better in books than it, than it does in movies. So, so the stuff that's left out, but the adaptation works as much of it in. Um, I like the way they drop you right into it because... Um, I mean, yeah, in, in theory, you could kind of build up the, the menace and everything, but this way you sort of feel their confusion. And, um, you know, you saw the poster. You know it's called Firestarter. You kind of have an idea of, of what's going on as, as you're coming in. So I, I understand what you're saying in there, but I, I think that works. And then, um, you know, they, they do a good job. Um, filling in the background, and even though it is a talking movie, I, there's times I think they do a good job of, if not showing instead of telling, at least telling succinctly. Um, you know that that extends the details, like the fire extinguishers that you can see throughout their house uh, in the flashback when he <laughs> finds Vicky. That they don't, you know, they don't hit you over the head. One, we had fire extinguishers in every room, but they make sure as he walks through the house, you see and you get an idea of how how they're living. Mm. The dialogue's clunky at times. Um, and Andy activantal domination powers by, you know, just plunging his hands into his mullet. That's a little awkward, but I, I think they actually did convey a lot of the emotions, especially Drew Barrymore. A lot of times in movies, you get kids who seem like little adults, even younger than they It was right in between that, like an actual kid. Uh, they had a lot of lines straight from the book. Uh, one that gets me is when the agents are coming up the road at the farm. You know, she looks at her dad and says, "Okay, if I use my powers, will you still love me?" I, I don't know that 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 got me in 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 the dad feels. Um, you know, now maybe that adaptation and the stuff they pull from it doesn't work as well if you haven't read the book. Uh, um, maybe that's what helped me get get past some of the weaknesses. But I appreciated the fact that, uh, you know, the writer and director did fix something that, that wasn't broke. Now, you know, like I said, Stephen King puts a lot of details in. So at times this felt a little fast forwarded. When Andy's at the shop, he actually loses the power because they drug him. And then he finds a way to develop it and hide it from him. Whereas in this, he was like, oh, I don't have my powers. Not oh, wait, I guess I do. <laughs> But, you know, for the most part, that was necessary to keep the, the movie from dragging. Uh, Rainbird, I mean, you know, I've already seen articles like, hey, the new fire is fixing it because they've got an indigenous actor playing uh, playing Rainbird. 
And I mean, even even when you bring in General Patton himself, I see why that would run rub some people the wrong way. I mean, maybe they should have just changed name because I mean, I think George C. Scott did a pretty good job of making him intimidating. Although we'll concede he's a lot creepier in the book. Well, they say more menacing in the book. He's plenty creepy because they don't explain why he's so fascinated with Charlie in the movie until very late. And then it's just kind of like, uh, I want to kill her and maybe find out about her power. And uh, it's a lot more dark and disturbing in the book. Like I said, the effects were a lot better than I expected. Um, you know, I, I thought we were going to get one uh, cheesy inferno at the end. The... The fireballs, which were actual flaming things on strings, I read, that was a little weird. Um, Charlie just, I mean, her blowing up the bullet when Rainbird shot at her, that worked about as well as it could. But then when the bullets just started sparking and exploding, I did kind of start to roll my eyes, but I have accepted for years that the human torch isn't bulletproof. The bullets just melt before they reach him, so I had to I had to give give it that one. I, I, can I say that I, I don't need to raise an objection here and I don't mean to talk out of turn in our format. No, you're fine. But uh, I, it was something where the first few times they shoot at her and she just melts the bullets as they get to her. I honestly thought she just had like a, like a force field. Like yeah, it, it looks it, like it, a force field. Yeah. I, I thought she was able to somehow project a force field made of invisible fire or some shit. I was, and I, and I accepted that. But my and and that's not even my, my problem with it because I will have, I will have in a movie about a tele a, a pyrokinetic eight year old I'm not real married to well physics doesn't work that way I'm not that guy but I did have a problem when they used it for what felt like an eternity over and over and over and over again like we get it she can't be killed with bullets move on from this do something else. Yeah, and I will give Stephen King credit. He didn't have any instantly melting bullets in the book. <laughs> um, I guess my, my defense movie, because there, there are some, some issues with it. My defense rests on, this does an excellent job of translating the book to the screen. Um, you know, I, I looked at the, I watched the trailer for the new one, and I'm like, well, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. <laughs> but honestly, what whatever you think about this version to do something because this one this one just translated the book about as well as you could do it without making it you know three hours long or a, a TV miniseries or something and I'm not sure there's there's enough uh, enough really to, to justify that but the, the new one's gonna have to do some some different approaches not only because you know some folks like might, might find it more interesting but because you can't you can't really translate the book much much better than they did. Yeah, you could punch up the effects a little bit, but if you're if you're gonna do a straight, completely faithful, strict adaptation, you're not gonna make that that big a difference other than better special effects and an actual indigenous actor as Rainbird. So um, you know, not a perfect movie, but uh, it, it's faithful to a darn good book, and uh, I. Uh, I uh, ask you to find it uh, not guilty on those grounds. <laughs> and what if she were white? No. Um, I'm going back to your time to kill reference. Okay, so we can just chat oh. now. Um, this is the part of the this is the part of the story. Normally, like I said, Sean and I, whenever we do this, we, we'd be at 45 minutes by this point. So 
Uh, we actually have a little time to just kind of go back and forth. Uh, I didn't hate the movie. Um, this is where you get real, my real thoughts. I didn't hate the movie. I just kind of found it bland, you know? And I think I, I'm really interested in seeing the new one because I think as a premise, this is kind of, this is a fun idea, but I, I think, I think you have to do more with it. You really have to go for it to um, fulfill the potential of the premise. But just judging the movie as it is and not comparing it to the new one that I haven't even seen yet because it's not out, you know, or the book. I'm interested in a little in hearing a little bit more about your opinion. You're saying that this is almost a literal translation of the book. Um, I think you can do the same movie, but I do, but it just some minor tweaks here and there and some, you know, some changes to performances, better direction and some enhanced special effects. Also, I, I don't know. What did you think of the pacing of this? Because I thought this was at, at almost two hours. This felt longer. And I'm wondering if there's a problem with pacing. And I say I wonder because I watched part of it at a friend's house today. Then I came home and watched it again like a few hours later. And I know I dozed off at one point. So I'm. is it me? Am I the drama? I know. Is it me? Did I was it not paced well or was I just tired and not totally focused on it? What do you think? Well, you know, a lot of it, it maybe, maybe it wasn't so great that, that I, I read the book first. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just, that, that's always my rule of thumb. Although honestly, I find that if I watch the movie first, then read the book, I like the movie. Mm -hmm. If I want, if I read the book, then watch the movie, I tend to prefer the book. So uh, maybe I'm just, you know, easily influenced by the first thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a problem with the pacing, but that's because compared to the story, it was a lot faster. So, okay. like, um, how, the, how big is the there book? At, uh, the grandfather, what was that? How big is the book? Like, how many pages? It's not. It, it's not even four hundred pages. Okay. It, the, the the timing, like, they spend months at the grand cabin, um, which uh, it really kind of kind of changes the dynamic and. Um, the shop finds them almost instantly. And after what happened at the farm, they're like, maybe we just better figure out a better way than, you know, pointing guns at, at the little girl who can blow things up with her mind. And so like Charles and changes in that time, they really thought they were safe until they get, you know, this little twinge of intuition that something coming from there. It, it pretty much goes along um, like the movie where the capture and then their time at the shop is a lot more drawn out. I forget how months, but again, Andy is like really loses his ability and can't figure out what's going on with it. And there's a whole thing where, you know, he, he realizes he's, he's addicted to the drugs and he, he's got to overcome that. And, uh, you know, whereas in this, and again, I, they couldn't have really done this in the movie. Cause if you thought there was an issue with pacing, you know, believe that would that would have really slowed it down um but it, it loses some of some of the the emotion and and the depth in the in that j just the, that that adds because they're not you know it starts out at a breakneck pace and then there's this lull where they change and then you have captured and then you know more changes and development like it takes rainbird a lot longer to 
you know, kind of get through Charlie's defenses. She's, you know, she, she doesn't, doesn't trust anybody there. And, you know, I, I think, I think the part where, you know, the power goes out and they're stuck in the room together is like the second time we see them together on screen. I know I'm mm-hmm. sure it, it's implied or it could be inferred that there was more time, but you know, it, it rainbird's a lot more deliberate, a lot weirder. In rainbird the, has my favorite line so, of this uh, entire you know, that, movie. Rainbird has has my favorite line of this entire movie. We're talking about like how he's going to kill Drew Barrymore. He's like, "Well, I'm going to punch her in the nose, and I'm going to send bone fragments into her brain." And I'm like, "That's fantastic!" <laughs> it was, it was and, one and of those that's, moments where that's straight from the book. Oh, is it really? Um, I'm I'm sitting there oh, yeah. again. I I was like texting people, and I was half asleep, and I was petting my dog, and it was dark out, and there were wolves after me. And he is just like, I'm going to I'm going to feign that we're friends, and then I'm going to sucker punch her in the nose and bone fragment into her brain, and she'll die. And I kind of looked up from everything that I was doing, of like, Bruh? you know, <laughs> like what the hell? <laughs> um, I you know, that, that's one of those that they pulled right out. Yeah. Okay. But, but they they do I mean he is really unsettling not just because mm-hmm. he's this you know old assassin who's fascinated with this this little girl because there really is an aspect with his I mean there's no way his uh, fixation on her is healthy or normal or, or acceptable but there is an aspect where he really does care about her in a completely tw- twisted way but it's you know he, he's just just obsessed with with death, it talks about one of the reasons that he kills people aside from being really good at it is because he hopes when he sees them die, he'll get some clue as to what's on the other side. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks because of her power, she's connected you know, to something. They, they never, they don't in the book really explain other than, you know, lot six, the drugs and the parents, DNA mixing, why she has mm-hmm. these powers. But they theorize that, you know, not just, you know, a Zippo in her head that, that she's tapping into some fundamental force or, or, or whatever. So, um, and that's what Rainbird thinks that he can finally learn the secrets of death uh, with this girl who's, you know, more connected to the universe than anyone else he's ever killed before. Can we talk about the art of adaptation for a second? Because I've heard you say now a couple of times, this is a literal translation of the book. And I know from my experience with Lord of the Rings, um, we have a phrase on here. I was actually just telling one of our friends about this um, that, that I've met recently. Uh, and so I don't know how much of my podcast she's been able to listen to, but we were, we were, she, she was asking me about my favorite movies and stuff. And I mentioned Lord of the Rings. She's like, did you read the books? And I said, not only have I read the books, but I have gotten into near fistfights with, with people about <laughs> where's Tom Bombadil? Where is he? I don't understand. Why isn't Tom Bombadil in these, in these movies? Like he was the fucking star. Um, he and, lost and his people, passport. Couldn't get to New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, but people like I don't know if you know this or not, Evan. This, that's not a setup for a joke, by the way. I'm not about to. I'm not about to ask you to take a BDSM quiz or something like that. But um, like I did, Jesse. No, why would you do that? Yeah, no, to you. First of all, I would, but I don't know if you'd ever talk to me again. Um, because <laughs> I think, because I think you taking that quiz would almost be as funny, if not funnier than Jesse taking it, but I digress. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but people get really upset, really, really upset when you don't do a literal adaptation of their favorite thing. And, you know, it's like, I, I found that if you don't like the Lord of the Rings thing, you know, Tom Bombadil, l- look at the Harry Potter books. 
my father said that uh, like the first one or two of them um are are pretty close to the books and then it's a cliff notes the movies are cliff notes of the books going f- from the third one on yeah this oh, much definitely the first out. two are pretty faithful right and then yeah and then it, as you go on it, it's they're taking bits and pieces of things but they're not fully faithful and and there are people that would argue and that's the point that i'm trying to make people would argue that if you don't get capture every detail from the book in your movie it's a poor adaptation and robert and i have talked about this before um an adaptation is just that you're taking the source material like a comic book you know like civil war wasn't a literal translation of the civil war comic as you know they took the premise they tweaked it for the marvel cinematic universe they put it in the bed with madonna she slept with it and then voila you had <laughs> you had this other civil war movie that resembles in some ways the comic book story but isn't a literal adaptation um and outside of my gripes with tony and the winter soldier it's a darn good movie um i posit and this is where i want you to weigh in i posit that sometimes i think you're doing a disservice to the source material by drawing out every single detail you don't always need tom bombadil you can give his stuff to the ends and to others <clears throat> to keep the flow moving you can in fact invent a whole character out of cloth like you you know they did with Steven Tyler's daughter Liv Tyler uh in Lord of the Rings and give her stuff to do because as my daughter pointed out certainly is a lot of men in this movie you know like where are the, where, where are the my little feminist daughter she's like I don't see any hero chicks in here what's with the, the anti-woman movie Lord of the Rings and I'm like easy he he, he wrote it after World War One. There were no women at that time. You'll you'll be okay. <laughs> um, so Lord Garrett in World War. II. Yeah. So I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on the art of adaptation. I agree with you. You can't you can't squeeze everything in. Um, especially, I mean, the first two Harry Potter books. To go back to your example, were probably the last two mm-hmm. that you could fit in a movie that people. Would, mm-hmm. would actually sit through um the third one uh, alfonso Cuaron, who i've learned uh was a little too fascinated with the the mentors freezing things but uh but that's not the movie that's on trial here um no you you can't you can't uh you know sacrifice the uh the movie experience just to to shove everything in what i liked about this one is that even the changes that I didn't necessarily for the things they left out that I thought took away from it didn't hurt the, the basic premise of the story. I, you know, I've seen some things where they make changes and and I don't understand why, you know, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, obviously. How how does this add to the narrative? How does this add to the narrative? What, what are we, why was this in the movie? Is this a studio note? That sort of thing. I assume is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like uh, we may uh, there's a uh, there's a comic I don't know if you're familiar with uh, called Life that they turned into a movie and uh, one day we'll talk uh-huh. about that. So I had questions sure. about a lot of the changes. I don't there. know when we're gonna get to it. I'm really busy. Um, I'm only going down to two days a week. Yeah, we should do a podcast on that sometime. Um, but in, anyway, me. you know it. <laughs> if I if if I can see why the changes are made 
or if it, mm. you know, enhances or works with the story, I, I, I'm okay with it. Like, you know, I, I've, you brought up comics first, not me this time. So, you know, I mean, you can't, you know, squeeze 60 years of Marvel comics in, into one movie. So you, you go with the spirit of it. You, you go with the ideas. Mm. You know, a lot of people right. are still mad that Jarvis was a computer program. Well, oh my God. Don't people, have that are many mad. people are mad that the Mandarin wasn't a racist Chinese caricature. People are mad that Tony didn't catch shrapnel in Vietnam. I mean, <laughs> you yeah, know, it, 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 it doesn't work. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are some people that are mad that my personal favorite MCU character, Korg, isn't a big, boring pile of rocks and actually, and, you know, steals every scene he's in. But that's neither here nor there. I know you got a lot of uh, Ragnarok fans on the network. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Almost everybody, uh, almost everybody on the roster is a huge Ragnarok fan. Yeah. Well, if, if if I hadn't muted the chat because I still haven't seen Doctor Strange, I'd probably be muting it now anyway. Uh, oh, you, based ha on you haven't but seen Doctor Strange meets the X-Men yet? There's this really cool scene where Logan shows up with Jubilee. Go ahead. Okay, well, no, I'm sure it's all Mephisto anyway. But um, <laughs> when are they going to recruit Charlie? <laughs> Wait a minute e now. Wait a minute. <laughs> We're good. Okay, um, but yeah, no, I I don't, I I I defended it based on the quality of the adaptation because I mean honestly I'm watching it and I'm like, well, you know I I was I was going back and forth because you uh you were kind enough to let me pick and I'm like I'm not sure how I feel and I finally landed on you know what they didn't butcher the story they got the story right they included the stuff I thought was important um, no it, it it doesn't have to be faithful. Um, I mean, Zack Snyder made a pretty darn faithful adaptation of Watchmen, and after it was over, I was like, huh, well, that happened. Yeah. Um, That's actually a really good Watchmen, example. Of, I had already seen the visuals. Watchmen's a really good example in, uh, of an adaptation to where, and I think, I, I think a good comparison is Watchmen and Civil War, again. Because Watchmen it is almost a page-by-page -page adaptation of the book where they essentially just kind of tore the book apart, storyboarded each page, and that was your movie. And a lot of people walked away from the Watchmen movie going, this was boring as shit. Um, and I don't, this feels a lot of, a lot of problems people have with Watchmen is that, it, you know, it feels not only overly long, but not narratively coherent. Um, it just, it, it's not as snappy as it needed to be for the kind of movie that it was, as opposed to Civil War, which we talked about, you know, where they took they took resonant issues that have happened in the MCU. I mean, there's that whole, you know, the, the reason why they're making the superheroes register and, you know, and be under the control of the United Nations is because not only did Wanda just kill people, but the Avengers have killed people before. I mean, Tony invented a murder bot. You know, shit, ha shit has happened. And, and while I've argued to him blue in the face that, you know, Ross's examples of like, you know, where's Thor and the Hulk? as if you could control either one somehow it's kind of you know the grander point the greater point i think is made of you guys have run around and he says this in the movie it's like you guys have run around unchecked with no supervision and people get hurt maybe you need some guidance because i don't know maybe putting together a paramilitary terrorist team of superheroes is not a great idea taking the law into their own hands and just going off avenging people um so 
I mostly enjoy Civil War, and I think it's a really good example of. T- I mean, when you think about what Civil War was, it was a ideological fight between Captain America and Iron Man about consent and self determination. And what was the movie Civil War about? An ideological debate between Captain America and Iron Man about consent and uh, self determination. So after that, it's like, do the details matter that much? To some people, they do. Some people take this, you know, some people, Robert and I talked about this, I think, two weeks ago when we reviewed The Northmen. Some people take the stuff that they love in nerd culture, and that's their, A, that's their whole personality. So when things don't work out quite the way they will, it almost, you know, it's almost an invalidation of who they are. So that you didn't put Tom Bombadil in the fucking Lord of the Rings doesn't hurt me personally, but for other people... You know, it's a knife in the heart. And I'll give you the final say on Firestarter and the Art of Adaptation before we start heading out for the night. Okay. Well, like I said, I I enjoyed the movie. Uh, I'm not going to say it was without faults. Um, And maybe, honestly, it does help to to read the book first. Maybe that that smooths over uh, some of the things because you can... No, Evan, books are for burning. Well, it's a good thing we have a fire starter then, huh? Oh my god. Okay, that doesn't work. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't didn't burn. <laughs> No, I uh I, I, I enjoyed it overall. I, I am kind of curious to see what, what they do with with the new one just just to see, you know, if uh if they do successfully adapt it while going in, in different directions. I mean, there's certainly a lot that that wasn't explored in the book uh, that, that you can do. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought it, it told a good story and an emotional story that resonated with me, and the, the movie reflected that. Um, so, you know, could, could could there have been lines delivered a little more convincingly, especially by the, uh, the government agents? Sure. I mean, you know, even some of those guys uh, got... Um, got a little bit of backstory and personality before they were burned to a crisp in, in the book. Um, sure. So, you know, that, that, that adds to, but again, you can't fit everything in and the things that, that didn't make it in. I, I understand. I don't demand every adaptation be faithful, but I thought this one was pretty faithful and I thought it worked. All right, folks. Um, we'll go ahead and call it for the evening. Uh, normally when I do this with Sean, I'm a scotch and I say, you know, obviously I won. I win all of our arguments because I'm so smart, but this is Evan Bevins and Evan Bevins has never heard a fly, not a soul. He walks among the angels. So, uh, I believe we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll get the verdict from the jury and the, ver- and, the and the jury says we love Evan Bevins. So not guilty. seems a little loaded. That's all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. all right, folks, that what, is our review. What, what are you going to ask me to talk about next? <laughs> <laughs> feel like you're buttering me up no 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 dude i'm trying to cut back i like i had to like cut stuff like we were supposed to i feel so bad see now i'm trying to do plugs but like you're like you're you want you're making me talk um i feel bad because in my in the great pullback of 2022 to where i you know i laid out a plan to cut back from 87 podcasts in a week to just two by the uh, by the end of summer um, I had to just straight up cut people's shows and you got and some of your stuff got cut. And like we talked about killing dur- during one of my manic highs to where I wanted to do every comic book adaptation. And I was like, I'm going to do all of these shows with Evan. 
Um, because you're very what what the thing that I like about you is how available you are at a moment's notice. Um, so <laughs> so uh, there was water and we, and we falling have... out of my ceiling. I'm sorry. <laughs> um and we don't have to plan these things months in advance because of our crazy schedules. You know, it's like I just call you and you you just appear. Uh yeah, I, I feel bad because we've had on we've had I Kill Giants on the schedule for a while now, and I'm like, I, I don't have time. I will never get the two shows a week if I do everything I promised I was going to do with people. So some stuff had to get cut. But I feel bad because I like recording with you. So no, I'm not I'm not buttering you up for anything yet. No. <laughs> don't feel bad about I Kill Giants. Okay, I won't. Uh, I, 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 will, I however, found it at Dollar Tree. I'm going to use it as, as blog fodder, if nothing else. So, Perfect. Well, maybe someday uh, in the future, uh, I'll have a reason to pick up another day and we can we can revisit the idea. Or one night I won't want to do the Metal Hammer of Doom and instead I'll want to do I Kill Giants. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Uh, with that said, tomorrow um, we are going to be reviewing WrestleMania Backlash 2022. That'll be me and the Podsman in theory. That'll be at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we'll be streaming live here on W2M. Um, and then in the evening, it'll be myself, Robert, Alexis, and David Wright reviewing Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Missed Opportunities. Um, on Wednesday... No spoilers. <laughs> Shut up, Alexis. Alexis, stop. Jesus. Uh, on Wednesday, we will be doing a... Uh, review of Fozzie Boombox, our uh, Metal Hammer of Doom extra for Sane is currently up on YouTube. It's been up for about a week now. Everyone should check it out. I make Jesse Starcher take a BDSM um, quiz, personality quiz, which I would recommend everyone take. You find out a lot about yourself when you take these BDSM quizzes. Did you know, Evan Bevins, that my top two, what my top two are? Did you know that I was a... Uh, 100% Primal Hunter and 100% Switch, which kind of sounds like a D&D class, but it's apparently these are BDSM um, personality traits of some description. Don't you find that interesting? Aren't which you glad I told you this? Books. That stands yeah. for books, dioramas, Scrabble, and macaroons? Yes. Yes. Make-believe. The M the oh, stands yeah. for make-believe. Lots of make believe. I in, love in this make believe. Community. Sure, you should absolutely, you should absolutely take the BDSM quiz to find out what make believe personality you have, and then report back to me. Please answer. Please answer a lot of the boy, girl, and age play questions uh, with absolutely agree. Okay, I need. I'm going to need you to do that for me. I'm going to absolutely disagree right now. <laughs> One, one, one. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> so that's up in the archives. Uh, Thursday, Evan will be back, believe it or not. <laughs> this was this was Evan Bevan's week. Um, Thursday, Evan will be back, and we'll be talking Moon Knight Season 1. Are you caught up? Have you seen it all now? I have. Okay. I couldn't well, dodge spoilers for that and Doctor Strange at the same time. Fair enough. Uh, we'll be reviewing that Thursday night at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard. Uh, I'm three episodes into it. I have three more episodes left. Um, easily right now, the third episode's the best one. But we'll see, you know, I'll see how we'll see how four, five, and six are, and we'll talk about it Thursday. Uh, this weekend, we've got a re-airing of Money Monster, starring uh, George Clooney and Julia uh, Lewis. No, Julia. Damn it, 
Julia Roberts. Was, um, that's the one. Thank you. Julia Roberts. And then we've got on Sunday, uh, we've got an Everyone Loves a Bad Guy re-airing. Uh, this is Animal Villains. Yes, sir. Animal Villains. Animal Villains in movies and television. So that's all my plugs for this week. Go ahead, Evan. Talk about your blog. Talk about your... Um... Oh, Evan Bevins and I are actually contributing to the Superblog team up. That'll be going live on May 18th. And our contribution, uh, the theme is the, the anniversary of Image Comics. Evan and I will be doing a comic strip on an Image Comic, Term Life, which was adapted into a movie that nobody watched on Netflix, starring Vince Vaughn and, and uh, Hawkeye star Haley Stansfield. So um, go ahead and do your plug, sir. Okay, well, um, you can find my writing at the uh, at asterisk51.blogspot.com, uh, where I've already talked about some of the high lows of Moon Knight's career. I'm currently working my way through Secret Defenders, the greatest comic of the 90s you've never heard of, uh, where Doctor Strange picks a random team from some uh, psychic tarot cards, and uh, right now they're chasing a serial killer across Route 66. His name is Roadkill. Um and uh, then, but I also get, get into some movies on there. Um, uh, you might see I Kill Giants on, on there one day. Um, I, I like to see what, uh, what I can find at the Dollar Tree and uh, if I can get through watching it. Um, and see, you can also uh, find at, um, oh man, I wish you edited these like Jesse, because you could just cut this out right now. Um, on webtoons, no, I like, uh, no Evan. I like you. I like you raw and unedited. It's <laughs> even less thing than it sounds. <laughs> but uh, webtoons, uh, I write a. Uh, I wrote a webcomic called Support Group about a support group for people with lame superpowers. In case your origin doesn't work out the way they show it in the comics. And uh, that's uh, that. That's that's where you can find me uh, without all the ums and ahs and uh, repetition. He's got a few ums and ahs, and he takes a little pause in just the right places. Ooh ah! You ever listen to No Effects? You a Cali punk guy? Nah. <laughs> Sorry. All righty. Thanks, Chatty. All right, folks. Uh, court is. <laughs> court is now in recess we thank you for joining us here on on trial uh for firestarter starring drew barrymore for evan bevins the saintly evan bevins who doesn't have to use some language tonight i kept it clean chris i kept it squeaky clean like fresh out of the shower clean tonight for evan bevins so that he could show this to his mother and say mother aren't you proud of me mama mama talk to me mama Only two f bombs. Did I? <laughs> I? I thought I kept it clean. All right, folks. You're pretty casual. Bev- Thank you. <laughs> like like a hero. Uh, for Evan Bevins, I'm Mark Rattledge. This has been on trial on the American Whammy Network. Be well, be safe, and behave.